This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. How long have we known each other, Ken? I ever break a promise to you? I will put you in the driver's seat at Le Mans. You just shut your mouth and let me do my thing. All right. Morning, Shelby. Morning, Molly. Up yours. I'll go to hell. Fox Searchlight's racing drama, Ford vs. Ferrari, is based on the true story of American car designer Carol Shelby, played by Matt Damon, and driver Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale. In the James Mangold-directed film, they team up to build a new race car for the Ford Motor Company and take on Ferrari. This involved a faithful recreation of the historic 24 Hours of Le Mans in France during 1966. Sound played a pivotal role in putting the audience in the driver's seat. To discuss this work, today I'm joined by supervising sound editor Don Sylvester, sound designer and re-recording mixer David Giamarco, and re-recording mixer Paul Massey. Massey won an Oscar last season for Bohemian Rhapsody and has also earned six additional Academy Award nominations. Giamarco was twice nominated for Moneyball and 310 to Yuma, and Sylvester previously won a BAFTA for Walk the Line. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter's Behind Screen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please introduce yourselves. Let's start with Don. Uh, my name is Don Sylvester. I'm the supervising sound editor. I'm David Giamarco. I was a effects recording mixer and a sound editor on the show. And Paul Massey, I was the um, dialogue and music re-recording mixer. Well, welcome. To start, you've all worked with James Mangold before. What is he like to collaborate with? Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> He's very collaborative. He has some amazing ideas that he throws out sometimes at the wackiest times, but... Um, He's all about story and character development, and we've all been very, very lucky to work with him on several films in the past. I like working with Jim because he pushes me harder. We've been working with him for a few years now, and I think that that's rubbing off. I think I'm a better editor now because he keeps pushing, and even though you think, aha, I'm going to show him, I've got something pretty great, and he'll go, what? You can do better, and we do. So I like that. Yeah, Working on it, cutting sound effects for him i'm trying to think is he gonna like this and and hope he does and then you gotta also make yourself happy and then when you get with him then he can take it to another level with us which is and he does really good 
So what were the initial conversations that you had with him? Is is he a racing fan? Were you racing fans? Were you familiar with the story? I wouldn't think Jim is a racing fan. Um, Jim is a story man. And if the racing helps him achieve his storytelling goals, that's great. But um, I think he was pretty surprised at the beginning because we added a temp soundtrack of cars and things that he hadn't heard before. They kind of, it kind of put it in a different space for him. And I think he was pleasantly surprised that he had a racing movie on his hands because if you spent a lot of time cutting together a bunch of MOS stuff, you know, without sound and you try to put it together, it doesn't really have any kind of impact. And the moment you start putting engines in there, it changes the whole feel of the whole thing. So he was from the beginning, he kind of gave me a thumbs up. So that was pretty unusual. Well, let's start with the research. Since this was uh, 1966, you had period cards. You had to, for starters, find the Ford GT40. Well, there are a few Ford GT40s out there. Uh, they are probably worth $10 million, $15 million each. And I can probably name them. There's a few in San Francisco. There's one in London. There's one in New York. We couldn't get anybody, surprisingly, to let us take those cars and record them for the film. No one who has a valuable car like that wants to give it to us to drive it around a track uh, with a bunch of microphones sticking all over it. Plus, they've seen you drive, Don. <laughs> especially especially me. But uh, I knew we had to get the original thing. I knew that was like from the very beginning, I knew we had to get the real GT40. I knew it. And I was afraid that once, you know, we got something from a, a bad library somewhere, someone would call me up and say, like, you failed. This is not what the car sounded like. I was there. You'll never. This is completely a failure. So that fear was with me from the very beginning. So we were so fortunate that we found a, a guy in Ohio who actually built his own GT40 from original Ford parts and had it certified by Ford as a legitimate GT40. They came out and they gave it a serial number. And it's got all the GT40 elements we need. It's got the original engine and the, and the pipes and everything. And he was totally into it. So we went out to Ohio and he, he got the real GT40. So that was a stroke of luck. That was great. So you were able to take it out and mm -hmm. on a Well, we track. didn't. He did. He did. I actually didn't uh, run the recording session. John Fissell, our recordist, did. And he... Uh, he mic'd the exhaust and the engine block and inside the car. And I think we had like three or four rigs going. And then I did recordings on the outside and the passbys and things like that. But at the end of the day, we had hours and hours of recordings from all different things. I think the problem was that we had probably too many tracks because a lot of it doesn't focus on the power of the car. A lot of it, you know, is extra sound. Yeah, so we had mics on the transmission housings and transaxles, and so there was that gave us whines and different interior sounds coming from some of the microphones. So it was uh, going through those tracks too and kind of finding the right sounds for the right places as well. But we had a lot to work from. Now, the other hero car was the Ferrari. Tell us about that one. Well, another hard car to find. I think the Ferraris are worth even more. But it was so great that once you get inside the world of rich men owning expensive race cars, they know each other. And so our friend in Ohio said, well, I've got a friend who's got a Ferrari. And it's like, well, how, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> so we met this other man in Atlanta who had a Testarossa. It was actually a 59, but it had the same a number of cylinders. It had a V12 and it had uh, identical pipes. So we were pretty happy about that, but we couldn't record it in Atlanta because it was too loud. The ordinances in Atlanta refused to allow him to race his car. So we took it down to Florida, who are much more lenient. 
and we took it out in the track there. And another another success because we wanted the the cars to be so realistic that we wanted them to be the actual cars. I mean, that was my goal. Right. And then in addition to these two hero cars, I'm sure you had to record racing. Tell us about the other elements that you needed. Luckily, we, in California, we have a lot of racetracks. Uh, is it Arroyo Seco? Laguna Seca. Laguna Seca. In Laguna Seca, they have a classic car race. Uh, we actually got to record a lot of the background car sounds of the racetrack and the pits and the environments and some pass-bys of vintage cars. So that acted as a bed for some of our recordings. We also got some original recordings of a, of a Cobra, a, a Ford Cobra. We had all these original recordings as a base for everything that we put into the film. And then we augmented when we had to. So we were very fortunate in that regard. Yeah, because the, co the Cobra, the GT40 in the movie evolves with the engine size as well. So we had the smaller engine GT40, and that grew to the big 427 engine in the GT40. Uh, we recorded a Porsche for Matt Damon's car, the opening sequence. Oh, that's right, yeah. Um, and then supplemented... You know, with the track sounds that were from Laguna Seca were a lot of supplemental cars and, and ambient tracks, so it helped us a lot. Then there was some cars we had for the, the additional racers, so in researching what those cars were, what kind of transmissions they had, and size engines, so it was actually a fun thing to chase down. In addition to what you had to record for the racing, there was also a lot, I would imagine, that you had to take out because this is 1966 and you had to take out any modern sounds. Was that a challenge? Well, not only modern sounds, but all the cars. I mean, Jim has been asked in interviews if we had the original cars, that those cars that are on the screen are original cars. And he said, no, 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 no. Those are just picture cars. Those are kits. And people go, well, they didn't have the original cars. Well, we did have the original cars because we had them in the soundtrack. But we didn't, the picture cars were kits indeed, but they had engines that were not anywhere close to what we needed. And uh, some of them were Chevy, some of them were, I don't know what kind of engines they were, but they were all over the tracks, all over the tracks. We had to remove them because even the actors said like, this is not what a race car sounds like. And we go like, we know, we know, we know. So we had to remove all of those and all the racing scenes are completely refabricated from the ground up because we couldn't use anything. So that's one thing we had to take out there's another area, I think, when you, there's the scene where Christian's talking with his son at the tarmac of an airport, and they're sitting on the tarmac having a chat. Unfortunately, we had, it's a real airport, and there were some real jet engines that we had to take out, and there were some backup beeps from delivery vehicles that we had to take out, and just things that were not 1965. And that ended up being looped, but I don't think you can tell. And things like that that would pop up in the tracks. Nothing in there about my trunk and your lovely little portmanteau. You're holding the 62 edition of the SCCA. You can stick this bloody sticker where the sun Hey, hey, Bill. Hey, right. Bill, what seems to be the problem? Well, the Mars problem is that Bill here is an arsehole. No, he doesn't mean that. No, yes, he does. No, yes, he, he really does. Yes, no, that. he He's really does think that Bill is an arsehole. I'm just doing my job here. Bill, 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 in my experience, there is, listen to me, something like this, there's always a middle ground. All right, now Ken's out of line. And I'm just right. doing my job. I understand you are. You know how he gets on a race day. You know that. All right, but you're not going to DQ us over a trunk. Now, you did the mix at Fox. Yes, on the fourth stage. What were some of the challenges to mixing this and bringing it all together? 
Well, I think as you know, as discussed, obviously it's a huge effects film for car racing, uh, but it's also an incredibly character-driven film. Jim's extremely good at storytelling, and he's all about character development through all of his films. And um, so, I think one of the biggest challenges for all of us, and especially for Dave and I, mixing it was to make sure that we weren't ripping the audience's head off when we got into these car sequences, and that we were able to bridge in and out of the smaller sequences and dialogue-driven sequences without feeling like you're on a roller coaster ride. And then how we integrated the effects with the music and vice versa during some of the bigger sequences was, was a big challenge. And also where to take music out. Uh, one, you know, the, the end sequence of Le Mans is about 25 minutes or so. They couldn't have it driving with music the entire way, and nor could you have it driving with effects the entire way. We had to pick and choose our moments and hopefully still get the excitement of all of the the cars across to the audience, but with uh, a feeling of emotion throughout the whole film from top to bottom. That 25 minutes almost had acts, if you will. It did, yeah, most with definitely. very different approaches to the sound. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, there were different acts in that just the length of the actual 24 hours took the races through day and night sequences, areas where the, where the drivers switched out, uh, areas where it was raining, areas where it wasn't raining, so the textures within the race itself changed, but we also had to, not, you know, we could start off in a sprint, as the race, one would imagine, would, and we could do that sound-wise as well with full-blown effects and music, but we had to settle things down and find holes and find periods to cut away for dialogue commentary and such, and then still manage to get back out and keep the excitement of the racing going, although at this point, you know, maybe we're 10 hours into the race, we still got another 14 to go, and likewise during our film, we had to make sure that the emotion at that 10-hour moment wasn't peaking, and the excitement wasn't peaking, and we had somewhere to go to take us to the end of the to the whole sequence. As you say, it was about four acts. and So we had a version of the film where there was a lot of music in that section, and, and then we all decided collectively that we needed to find gaps and we needed to find areas where we could pare down the music, for instance, and take out... And that was a score by Marco Beltrami. Marco Beltrami and Buck Sanders, yeah, edited by Ted Kaplan. They all did an amazing job. They, as I said earlier, they'd given me a lot of flexibility in the music, the way it was presented and the way things were separate. Uh, instrumentation was separate. So was able to really dial down on you know rhythm tracks when needed so that a string of a melody could sit underneath a car in an engine and you didn't feel like the momentum of the music had disappeared. But at the same time, the rhythm wasn't competing against suspension on the car and, and engine revs and transients that had to happen on cuts from the effects. So I think those were the challenges and just, you know, we, we went through, especially that section, we went through several times as a long overview to see if when we had taken the music out, did we suddenly put the brakes on the race or was it actually effective and meant more the next time it picked up? It took quite a long time for us all to collectively work out. Don started very early on and Jay Wilkinson started very early on and they cut amount of the cars, got that into the picture editors, and then we had done a temp mix for them, and that kind of helped shape where we were going to go with, with the track with Jim. So for me, mixing, it was always working from that, and we were going to add more. So um, getting to the mixing part of it, I felt like we were coming from a pretty good place, and Jim knew where we were going to be starting from, but he didn't know what we were going to bring. So in the pre-dub stages, my challenge was okay, here's what we're going to do, here's where we're going with this, 
the first reel we had pre-dubbed, Don and I were in there, and we called Jim in to come and listen to it in the, in the big room now. And I'm thinking, okay, well, here we go. We're going to see where this is at. And because normally he would come in and just, we'd be like, you know, in fear that he would rip it apart and we'd be completely wrong. I mean, we'd have to start all over again. Right. And he was, so he came in and uh, we played him the opening sequences of the reel. And then we played him Willow Springs race and we played him the, the Le Mans 59 race at the very beginning that Matt Damon races in. And at the end, he was like, this is great. And I was thrilled. And then he had a couple notes and he went away and he let us do our thing. And then we just started bringing more and we'd bring him in, show him stuff. And so it was always positive. So by the time we started finaling, we were in a really good place. It was going to be fine tuning. He's going to come up with more ideas all the time and give us great input. And we'd go with that. So. You, you remember he liked it so much he started bringing guests. Yeah. I'm really ready to show some of these. No, 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 show them. But it was exciting. So that, that was the challenge. And then mixing wise, the other big challenge was like Paul was saying, is now playing this against Marco's music and not being too overpowering, playing it in the right place, but still have that excitement of being in a race car. You want us to think like them. Enzo Ferrari will go down in history as the greatest car manufacturer of all time. Why? Is it because he built the most cars? It's because of what his cars mean. Victory. Ferrari wins at Le Mans. People, they, they want some of that victory. Now, what if the Ford badge where it counts with the first group of 17-year-olds in history with money in their pockets. Now, you also used Atmos. How did you use that sound format in order to enhance the experience? We used Atmos quite a bit, like the cockpits of the car when we were in the car, the suspension, the body creaks, those were playing all around us. The engines were all around us. And then, like, in the open car racing at the beginning of the reel, like, the buffeting winds that those drivers had pounding around their heads that was all around us the rain and then when we got to the big races in especially particularly in Le Mans the the crowds the stadium crowds would be all above us and helicopters airplanes things that might normally go up there were up there <laughs> so to get a sense of what you wanted it to sound like when they were inside the vehicles did you go out in a car in a race car yeah no no, I didn't. I just drove home really fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we put our microphones in a race car. Yeah. But even then, even then, I think we heightened the realism because a lot of cars today, these were obviously vintage cars, but a lot of cars today are really quiet and people aren't, aren't really aware of what it would sound like to be in a vintage race car going at 200 miles an hour. I mean, you're in a rocket. You have a seatbelt, but you have no other... I mean, you're going to die if you turn wrong. And it's like being in an early modern rocket going to the moon without any kind of protection. So these were very dangerous vehicles. And I think that Jim wanted to make sure that people understood that these men were taking their lives in their hand when they got inside these cars. So even when we recorded the real thing, it didn't sound as dangerous 
as it was. So we had to augment some of that, and I think it makes sense now. Yeah, he utilized a lot of the foley, didn't he, in, yes. in, the, in the final, so that the interior of yeah. the cars was not a comfortable place to be. There were things rattling and shaking and constantly moving and feeling unsettled. Nothing was very uh, pleasant about being inside the cockpit. No, it wasn't built for comfort. No. <laughs> From a research standpoint, did you have access to recordings of the races or what was involved? You know, I did have some access to racing recordings, but in the 60s, there's a different approach. I mean, most of these things were documentaries and they were mono and they were poor quality. They were like, you know, newsreel type things. And uh, it did help me when I actually wanted to hear what the actual sound of Le Mans sounded like. I did get a, a documentary about the race, and that's why I knew how the announcers would sound, and what I actually knew what the ambiance sort of of the of the end of the race would sound like, because that was featured in it. But I, I didn't actually get any kind of like insight into the danger of the race car. I just because a lot of these things are they're basically mono from nineteen sixty and sixty five, and so you know you, you have to just uh, take it and run with it. Dave, do you have a favorite moment in the film? Uh, a couple of moments I like a lot is um, the night before the Le Mans race when Carol Shelby and Ken Miles are talking in the rain at night on the track. And when Miles says something that you should be out here too, and, and that Damon said, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make this team. And I just saw about that moment that it's like he knows that Ken Miles is the guy to drive this car. And uh, he can't because of his heart condition, but also... You know, he'd love to be there, but it's just that far away from him. And and then my other moment I love so much is when we see that shot where he's waiting for the guys to catch up at the end of the Le Mans race. And when those two, I love how Jim put that together, when those two, it's like two leopards on the field are coming after him and they just blow past us down the the Mulsan straight and didn't come to catch miles. I, I love that moment. It's interesting that you would mention that scene out before the race, the night before the race, because Jim tells me a lot of that was ad-libbed. Really? Yeah. Talk about being real. Christian Bale and Matt Damon are such good actors that, I mean, they could read a phone book and it would probably be the best movie you'd ever see. You know, I know we had to do some looping, but they came in with great attitudes and they just nailed it every time. And I, I don't know if you can tell Paul did such a good job, but also they did such a good job. that I don't think you can tell when there's any, any looping in this film. But I think that they actually had a really good rapport, these two guys. I think they actually understood their characters very well. And I think, I think the, the comradeship between Carol Shelby and Ken Miles is on display here. I think they, they really they really felt it. I think they really did it, and uh, it shows on the screen. And, and the respect they had for each other, too. Yeah. There's another scene where it's very brief, but Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale, is, um, he can see that Matt Damon is unhappy about something. Something's going on in his head, and so he's asking, uh, Christian Bale is asking Matt Damon, you know, is everything okay? Because he knows that Matt Damon is dealing with the management at the Ford Ford Company. Matt turns around and says, you know, you do your job and I do my job and we don't need to ask each other about those things. And there's just, it's a great 
very brief moment of looks and respect for each other and okay i'll drive the car you go deal with the with the corporation and they they both do it so very well and i think that really comes across in the film in so many different scenes you can't just push the car hard the whole way right that's right you have to be kind to the car you feel the poor thing groaning underneath you if you're going to push a piece of machinery to the limit and expect it to hold together you have to have some sense of where that limit is look out there out there is the perfect lap no mistakes every gear change every corner perfect you see it Well, let's learn a little bit about each of you. Where are you from originally, and how did you get started in the business? Don, would you start? Um, I was in the music business for a long time, and when I met my future wife, I couldn't figure out why she had clean clothes on and new shoes, and and um, and she said, "Well, she worked in the film business," and I thought, "Oh." So uh, I made a few calls, and I and I realized that the people in the film business actually got a paycheck and that was pretty new to me uh i was paid in records and cds and things like that and <laughs> and, and i i worked uh i worked with harry riot at soundbusters first and i luckily got into fox a few years many years ago and uh, i've been lucky to be at fox for a long time i think fox is one of the greatest studios in the world and i think that uh, only fox could have made this movie i think it's got the right amount of support for the artists and the, and I think they understand Jim a lot and Jim feels really good at Fox and so uh, my loyalties lie with Fox 20th century, 20th century Fox. Fox yes I came from Canada I grew up outside of Toronto and got into film there and uh, moved here years later I was doing editorial and, and sound mixing and when this project came around and and we started talking about it I was absolutely thrilled because I grew up loving cars, working on cars, and I knew if Jim was going to get his hands on this, it was going to be something else. So I was pretty excited. And Paul? Um, I'm originally from London, and so I started off in the music industry in London um, as a musician and then as an assistant engineer and left in my late teens, went to Toronto, Canada. I was fortunate enough to work at a, a few music studios there and became a you know, music recording engineer at the time when we were doing a variety of different independent work for scores and for rock albums and commercials and uh, whatever. And then I did a lot of live recordings with, uh, with a lot of bands, stadium tours. And that was my sort of entry into working with Sound for Picture because I started to work on a few pay-per-view shows from these bands, from the concert tours and putting the the sound of the shows against picture. And then I sort of drifted into film. I had no real intention of getting into film, but um, actually did a lot of IMAX work in Toronto, where they were based at the time, and then moved to Filmhouse in Toronto, and fortunately got a job offer in L.A. shortly after that. So 1990, I moved to L.A., and I've been basically a dialogue and music mixer for film ever since. And Dave and I, we had met in in Toronto. We both moved to L.A. around the same time, actually, uh, just very coincidentally. And um, we've been working as a team now for about 13 or 14 years off and on here in L.A. You mentioned your music backgrounds. 
we're seeing Atmos used more and more frequently, it seems, in the music industry. What are your thoughts on that? I'm of two minds a little bit. I really enjoy hearing, you know, a really well-mixed piece of music in Atmos. I'm just finding that apart from theatre environment, the home Atmos environment is a little too unstable for me right now. There's too many um, um, variations in how people are playing them back and how people are monitoring them. And I'm, I'm starting to feel that people are throwing the word Atmos around to say quality when, which yes, it is, but not necessarily in, in the way everyone's listening to it. When you start getting the word Atmos on a, on a cell phone as an app, I really have to sort of pinch myself a little bit. Don't appreciate that. <laughs> but I love Atmos. In the theater, I love, I love working in Atmos. We mix everything now native Atmos, and everything else is a down mix from that that we, that we prepare from the native Atmos mix. And the, my favorite part of that is the fact that we have full range surrounds. Uh, it's a huge advantage to me. I think this film really lends itself to Atmos, too, because of where we go in the film. We're in the cockpit of the of the cars for a lot of this racing, and I think that's the kind of sounds that are really fantastic in an Atmos environment. What I don't understand is Atmos and the kitchen when people are talking right. to each other you know i mean but we actually can use it and then and we did and i think it i think it's a good example we have a really good example of what can be done and what's next for each of you i'm open okay <laughs> dave uh i'm don and i are doing a little project that we're right starting on it's a little project it's, it could be a big project i'm sorry <laughs> And I'm, I'm uh, heading back to London again shortly to do um, a mix on The Kingsman and then um, Bond, No Time to Die, right after that. So it's going to be a lot of time through the winter in London. Well, congratulations on the film and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.